Welcome to the Woke Blokes Podcast, hosted by Nick Sutherland from MindFit and Ryan Hassan from the Center for Healing. Let's get into today's episode. Ryan, you're up in Thailand, I gather. Yes, yes. I've been on uh, Koh Samui for about seven months now, since the start of March. So yeah, we're very fortunate <laughs> to have... Uh... Really, really. I was, I, my husband was, my partner was up in... Um, Thailand, oh, 2017, 16, 17, but we were up at Pak Chong, so right, right, up, uh, right up north. Um, so that was quite an experience working in another country, I've got to say. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, we, we were shifting our business online at the end of last year before the COVID stuff and everything happened. So, um, yeah, the internet's actually faster here than in Melbourne, so it's been fine. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it's a different cultural experience, isn't it? Are you enjoying yeah. it? Oh, loving it. And, you know, one thing that, you know, Nick and I have spoken on the podcast before and it's, it relates to, to mental health is um, uh, very community-based here. You know, we're, we're up in a – on it's quite a remote island, Coast Samui, and we're on a, quite a remote part up north and, and you find the uh, – Chiang Mon is the town and when you go down to Chiang Mon, kind of everybody knows each other and being here for seven months now, kind of we know most of the people in that area and everyone, everyone kind of helps each other, you know, if we need – um you know, a certain type of food or rent a car or rent a motorbike, then the lady at the local restaurant, she'll hook us up with whoever it is. And it, it is a very much a community and a, and a family kind of feel, which is great for mental health. And, you know, we have a, a young boy who's nearly two, and I think he's picking up on that kind of extended family kind of vibe, which is fantastic. Lovely, lovely, yeah, and I agree, it is great for mental health, great. Yes, all right, well, let's get cracking. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Woke Blokes podcast. It is Ryan Hassan from the Centre for Healing here, joined as always by Nick Sutherland from MindFit, and we are very, very excited, fortunate to have an amazing guest on today, Ms. Christine Morgan, CEO of the National Mental Health Commission and the uh, National Suicide Prevention Advisor to the Prime Minister. Christine, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and have, have a bit of a chat with you. Yeah, looking forward to it. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to throw over to you, Nick, because really uh, Nick was the one who uh, championed getting you on today. Uh, basically, as a follow-up to a conversation I, I think you guys had a little while back. So, Nick, do you just want to pick it up from there? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and it was a great to have that chat with you one-on-one uh, when you're doing the town hall meetings, Christine, and you were down in Safety Beach here just south of Melbourne. Um, and we caught up and just had a had a chat, and I, I really took away a, a synchronicity, I think, in in what we were talking about. And so I just wanted to, yeah, follow up and also to learn more about the ten year uh, plan that you're putting into place for the nation's mental health, and so to give our listeners an understanding of what's going on. Um, so yeah, I think an interesting takeaway that we got from that town hall meeting. I took a few clients with me, and they they'd been through my program and. I'm more psychoeducation, you know, we, we sort of help people do cognitive retraining and, and whatnot. Um, and they sat there and they and they saw a lot of, please fix me. They, they didn't see a lot of people were wanting to take ownership for their happiness and to be responsible for their happiness. There's, there seems to be a, people don't know they have mental health or they perceive mental health to be mental health issues or mental illness, and so therefore have an aversion to it. And so there seems to be a very common... uh, People aren't in a position where they can self-manage and self-regulate their emotions. They don't know how to do it because they haven't been taught, and so then they go into this um, 
please fix me or please help me mentality and then we start medicating the symptoms instead of alleviating the cause. So what, what was your takeaway from all the, the town hall meetings? Gosh, there's a lot in that, Nick, a lot in that. And, and so let me start with that, where you, where you finished on that, which is that a lot of people have a view of please fix me. And I'm with you on that. I think that whilst, um, whilst there are mental illnesses where we really do need to work with people and say, what can we do to get you to a point of better mental health and well-being? Um, and coming up from mental illness, there are mental health challenges for many people. I think one of the core things about anything to do with our mental health and well-being is that it absolutely requires our involvement. So mm. whether we're at the end of the spectrum where we're talking about a little bit like our physical health and well-being, where we spend time you know, doing an appropriate amount of exercise, we eat well, we sleep, and all those kind of things to look after our, our physical well-being, and that's just something which we now accept as being part of looking self-care. We have that requirement, I think, when it comes to our, our mental health, and I would encourage everybody to be recognising that our mental health is as much a part of us as our physical health, and spending time ensuring that we are doing those things to feel good in ourselves, to feel relaxed, to feel confident, um, are important things to do. But over and above that, when we have real challenges, whether we're going down a pathway of a mental disorder, um, whether we are really grappling with anxiety or uh, psychological distress, or indeed, even if we're at that more pointy end and we're dealing with a very severe mental illness, and I used to work in the areas of, of eating disorders, which are very mm. severe mental illnesses, one of the fundamental principles across that whole spectrum is that we need to be engaged in our own process of managing that illness and coming to a point of recovery. For nearly every type of mental health issue, there will be counselling, psychotherapy, um, psychoeducation indeed, all of those involved, and an integral part of that is our own engagement with it. So I think a big part of us going forward with our conversations around mental health and mental health and wellbeing and mental illness is this, the fact that it affects us as individuals and we need to be very much involved, not just in receiving treatment, but actually being very engaged in that process of walking towards being better. Mm. Well put, yeah. yeah. Has did you want to add to that? Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, there's a couple of things I want to add on, actually. Um, firstly, you touched on the uh, eating disorders, and you were CEO and director of the Butterfly Foundation uh, for, I think it was 10 or 11 years. And yeah. I, would, I would love to know sort of, yeah, what, what your learnings or maybe takeaways were from that time. Because I know for me, um, running my centre in Melbourne for the last four and a bit years, it was really interesting and something I didn't expect. You know, we saw a lot of depression, anxiety, addiction issues and everything. And when I did a real audit of all the clients that had come through our doors, a massive amount of them, a much higher percentage than I thought, whether it was the condition they were specifically coming in for or in conjunction with, you know, addictions, um, depression, anxiety, was eating disorders. And it's really, really um, massive and rife in this country. So I'd love to just get your maybe input in that and what you learned from your time at the Butterfly Foundation. Yeah, thank you for that, because it was, it was fascinating to me. So, um, and it was 10 years. Um, I started in 2008. I joined into that sector and was there until early, early 2019. And one of the reasons I got into it was because um, through personal exposure to it, 
I knew that it was more than a lifestyle choice. But back in 2008, there was still this very real perception that this was just something that teenage girls did where they mixed around with their eating, they tried to diet, and it just all got a bit out of control, and we just had to kind of fix that. And that kind of got my my fire going. I thought, I know it's not that. You know, I see what it's like. You cannot possibly walk the journey with somebody with an eating disorder and think that they're choosing to do it. If that's just so counterintuitive. Mm. And so it became um, a real passion and working with people to say, how can we really show that this is a really serious psych- a neuropsychiatric disorder? And over that 10 years, what was really fascinating was where the research went to. So back in 2008, the research was really about effectiveness of treatment. And most of us were saying the treatment doesn't seem to be effective. Then the research swung around, and this is really what unlocked it for us. The research swung across into what was happening in the neurosciences and what was happening in the genetics. And then what was happening in the field of epigenetics, which is effectively where you have genetic vulnerabilities and environmental and other triggers that actually affect your biomarkers. Mm -hmm. And there was some fantastic work done uh, by Janet Treasure at the Maudsley Clinic in London. Which, she's a neuropsychiatrist, which was actually showing what happens in the brain. And what we found over the course of those 10 years is that the pathway into an eating disorder, whether it's a restrictive one or a binging one, is effectively you have a genetic vulnerability. Some of the, the biomarkers on your genes are, are particularly sensitive. And environmental factors can, can kind of affect it. But what actually happens is when the eating disorder is triggered, your neural pathways change and starts to drive those very behaviours, whether they're the binging and the purging or the restriction or whatever it may be. Your brain takes over and you really need to intervene at that point and try through psychotherapeutic means and others to get your brain back in the right way. And what causes it for an eating disorder, which is really, really fascinating, what turns the trigger on, if you like, and and flicks those biomarkers, is restrictive eating and poor nutrition. So poor nutrition, in fact, probably even more than the restrictive eating. So the, the nutritional component can actually do it. And if you've got the genetic vulnerability, it will trigger it. So that was it was it was a fascinating journey. And but I think there I really learned the value of that proposition I was putting to Nick, which is that when you have a really serious, serious illness, such as anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, um, there is really no uh, drug that fixes it. Yes. It can kind of play around with some of the edges of it, but doesn't actually fix the illness. You need very specific um, psychotherapeutic interventions. And they will only work if you can be engaged in them. And you can mm. only be engaged in them if they actually resonate with you. So that is a really key thing. It's got to be the way that we do it. And Nick, going to something that I know you're really passionate about, um, what was absolutely critical to being able to engage in that process was to want to be better more than I wanted to hold on to whatever it was that was the benefit for me in being in that place. I had to unlock a desire to be happy. I had to unlock a desire to have a full life. I had to unlock a desire to want to move through it. And I think that's one of the real challenges in dealing with mental illness as distinct from physical illness. That with physical illness, it tends to be what drug can I take, what surgery can be done, what do I need to do to me rather than so much with me. Mm. 
Yeah, a couple of things there, um, which is really powerful. I love what you said, Christine, because I'm um, coming. My history is one of a drug addiction, and now working with a lot of um, drug addicts myself. And similar thing. It's like um, knowing now that you know the the judicial system and the old style of thinking is you know that addiction's a choice, and it's these choices that we made, and it's a moral failing that got out of control. And I'm like, from that experience, I'm like, no one chooses to be a drug addict. No one chooses to have bulimia. You know, it's just it's 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 not a thing that you consciously choose. Um, and I think, I know me and Nick are a little bit biased here, but I think what you said at the end there, having a lot more, not just lived experience practitioners, but also people with lived experience sharing their story is so powerful. Because I know a lot of people, when they're really down in the, the depths, in that deep hole of, of mental illness and these different issues, we feel like there's no way out and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. So I think a decision to, I want a happier life, needs to come from seeing that that's possible. And, and you know, if, if, I, if I have an eating disorder and our kinesiologist back at the center you know she her she was eating disorders as well and the people that came in would speak to her and all of a sudden they can see some light at the end of the tunnel and they can start to imagine a better future for themselves because they've seen someone else that's got past it and that needs to happen in the therapeutic intervention though and, and when I, I presented at my industry associations world conference last year or the year before and i, I sat in and listened to a, a professor talking about um, the study he'd done, the research he'd done into the, the three keys to a positive therapeutic experience in outcome. And the first of those was rapport and building rapport. And, and so many of my clients are coming to me and they've been gone to a GP, been referred to a mental health care plan and then sat with a clinician who, and, and I hear every single day nearly, it was just like they were reading a script or it was just like they were reading straight out of a book. There was no, no rapport created. Uh, and the second of those two keys was hope. And as you were just talking about, Ryan, to show them light at the end of the tunnel. This is where you are, point A. And this is a point B that's achievable and this is how we're going to facilitate that process and get you there. And then the third one, which was what you were alluding to, Christine, was that um, change, and that's literally changing someone's mind, changing the neurological pathways and, you know, all the, the neuroplasticity and that. So it's, it's really interesting from a lived experience practitioner to hear all these clients come in and go, nothing else has worked, there's nothing working because no one, everyone just wants to talk about why I feel this way or be, be solution uh, but be problem oriented and just do narrative therapy and talk about why instead of how. How are we going to get to this? And all right, you're using critical thinking errors, which is creating these emotional disturbances. Let's let's change them around. And it's just not happening enough, which I don't know strikes me as odd. You're so right, and I think that it, it's that sense of um, professionals trying to work on me rather than trying to work with me. And I remember in, um, in eating disorders that we were talking about how we actually, one of the key things that we needed to do to have more effective treatment was actually to collapse down that sort of sense of you're the professional, I'm the client or the patient that has to be worked on. Can you please be a bit more in the room with me? Can you be in this relationship with me? Now, of course, there are appropriate professional boundaries, but actually I think you can collapse those down more than perhaps is common practice um, in, in Australia. And I think that that's an, an exciting area that we're working on. I think that we certainly found as we worked with our therapists to encourage them to find safe ways, ways that they felt safe to do that there was a real sense of engagement between them and the therapeutic relationship became one where the client 
felt a lot more somebody's on the same page with me. And I think, in, interestingly, Nick, that um, I think that's particularly important across the spectrum, but particularly important, important for guys. Like, I think one of the factors about mental illness and, and mental health challenges is unlike physical health where you've got a lump or a bump and you go to somebody and say, hey, look at me and do a test on me and that works out what's wrong. The only way to actually start the process is one of being able to find a language to express how I'm feeling or my behaviours or my thoughts. And that means finding a language, but it also means finding a safe place a safe space and a safe person to start to have that conversation with and interested to hear what you and my think but my my learnings over the years is sometimes it must just probably be a genetic kind of thing for us girls but we tend to sometimes find it easier to start those conversations I think for a lot of guys there's some challenges in being able to maybe even find that language in the first place. But I'm interested in what you both may think on that. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that comes down to um, a lot of cultural ideas uh, around men. It also comes to an emotional intelligence thing with men. I mean, uh, our emotions uh, don't have a language. We have to translate an emotional feeling into a language to be able to converse with someone about it. And for a lot of men, it's just something that we've never been taught and never done. So all of a sudden, we run into these issues when we get into our late 20s, our 30s and our 40s, finding ourselves you know, drinking every day or whatever we're doing. And now it's like, we should go to someone and open up. And they're like, open up about what? There's nothing wrong. <laughs> when clearly there is, but it's very confronting for a man who is emotionally unintelligent to try and translate a lot of these things that they've pushed down throughout a lifetime with someone uh, in a room. And once again, this comes down, I loved what you said, it's kind of, we ideally with a therapist want to be taking a journey together and we're, so we're both very actively engaged, but a lot of men go in saying, I don't want to go and sit with someone and be told what's wrong with me. Yeah, when I can't even, I can't even explain myself what's wrong with me. But they don't, they don't want to talk about their story. They don't want to keep being taken into the narrative and into what's wrong. They, they want to be led out and guided out of that. Um, and yeah, I, th I think the emotional intelligence that you touch on has, that's all I'm really dealing in here is trying to help people emotionally evolve and to self-manage and self-regulate. But before they're in a position, they can do that. And I think there's a, there's a lot of expectation on people that you, you, sh you should be able to do more. But if you don't know that you have mental health and you realise it's just a spectrum of feelings and some feel good and some don't feel good, there's no positive or negative ones. And like with Hass and I, our mental health deteriorated into mental illness and um, into mental health issues and we, I, we tried medicating them with alcohol and, and Hass did it with drugs and then those mental health issues developed into mental illness. So it was akin to getting type 2 diabetes really. And then I had to go through a process where we started reversing that and getting my mental health back in shape, but I had to get my mind back in shape and those cognitive distortions that I talked about, my mind was so bent out of shape, I couldn't open my door. It disabled, my mind disabled my body. And so I, I needed somewhere just to go and break down and then a place where I could rebuild with, with some healthy tools and healthy resources and where I could develop my EQ and isn't that so important? And I think that um, a couple of things there that I'm hearing from that, Nick, was the, the importance of the professional to, you know, somebody who does understand. It's a bit like a, a coach, but, but I mean that in a very um, genuine way. I mean, there's a lot of expertise and learning that goes into how do I, as a professional, walk alongside someone, help them not 
not hear me giving them the answer, but mm. rather my expertise is helping giving them the, the guardrails, if you like, or the signposts as they gradually begin that process of understanding how am I finding within myself um, some of those answers I need, but with it, with the help of a professional who can really help me understand. Sometimes I even have to find a new way of thinking, as you're just saying. I need to to come into a healthier place within myself, so I can then actually uncover what it is within myself that I'm even looking for, and find a way through. So it's kind of a mixture of that very um, learned um, professionalism, alongside an ability to really interact with somebody and help them find the answers and I think the ones that sometimes really don't work when I when I've heard people who come to me who say nobody can really help me um, they have probably had an experience more where they've gone to see someone and that person has sought to apply to them something that might have worked for somebody else mm. or a, a, a preconceived outcome of what it should be and I think the real challenge is to say, how do I hold my professionalism and use those skills to help this person navigate through all of the tangles and horrors that they're going through to then unlock their own potential to find what it is they want. And that's a that's a real journey to go on. Mm, that's so true. And I think even from the, the client perspective as well, it's kind of understanding that there is a there's actually a menu of options because I've heard so many people they'll go and have an experience that wasn't ideal and then go oh therapy doesn't work for me and then not trying it again it's like well you're throwing out a pretty broad spectrum of things there when you say therapy doesn't work and that probably leads on to my next question Christine which is a big one which is you know what does the future look like for mental health in this country because you know right now there's never been as much awareness and focus on this topic in this country and there's also never been as many people struggling and more people and more people getting diagnosed with these issues so where do you see the the, the changes or where do you see things going in the next five to ten years okay I think it's an exciting time I think we are in the middle of what I call a real mental health reform agenda. There's a number of things that are being done in Australia at the moment. We have the Productivity Commission report, uh, which is currently with government and will be released um, for, for others to see with recommendations, etc. in it. We have the Royal Commission in Victoria. Um, the Productivity Commission is looking at what is the system. The Royal Commission in Victoria is looking at what is the user experience, you know, what's it like to have to use the, the mental health system. We have the um, Aged Care Royal Commission, we, which involves also consideration of mental health challenges. Um, we have the Medicare benefits uh, system review and what does that mean for mental health and, and that's a fairly blunt sort of instrument you're using. And then within that we have the work that the Commission is doing where I had the, the, the great joy to meet Nick. Um, gosh, Nick, that was back in a different different year, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you so can travel. Um, we could travel. I could come to your beautiful part of the world. And what 2030 Vision is about is to actually say, let's not look at those next things we need to do to make it better, but rather let's vision what it would look like if it was really working as a really good system, um, and then we can retrofit back. So um, so where we got to with that is we, we, we toured the country, we went to 26 different um, communities, had a lot of town hall conversations, a lot of stakeholder meetings. We did a really large survey. So we ended up with um, three and a half thousand odd kind of responses and inputs that we needed. And we've distilled it down into what does it actually mean? And interestingly, and then 
so in, then the, and this probably answers your question, Ryan, we are in the process of trying to put together a roadmap to say what are the things you would need to look at and do to try and deliver to it. But two really fundamental things came out of that process. Um, and to try and put them into um, kind of um, understandable terms because we have a really complicated system. If you think of our system as having three bits to it, we have what we call the primary care bit. Primary care is our GPs and our easy entry points into the care system. And that tends to get funded by the Commonwealth. Then we've got what we call our tertiary or our hospital system, which is looked after by um, by states and territories. And then we have what for mental health challenges really is the key area, which is all the stuff that we do in community, that we do not in hospitals and etc. So what, what does that look like? And the single biggest thing that came out of Vision 2030 was the fact that nobody had actually owned that space. Nobody had said, what are the essential components of care that need to be delivered in that community-based setting? What um, And what are the means by which we're doing that? What does it mean to be able to navigate through all of that? How if I don't even know what's wrong with me, how can I go somewhere and not have to tell my story? As Nick says, you don't want to keep going back into your story 50,000 times. You don't even want to do it with your own therapist more than once and then move on. So how can we have a system that enables me to go through no wrong doors, we say, and reach the care that I need? So that's the big piece of work we're working on. But the other thing that was really interesting that came out from everybody is that to date our mental health system has been pretty much how much is it costing for us to work on people? How much is it costing for us to fix somebody's illness? It's very much an expenditure-based focus on medicalising mental illness. And the clarion call around the country was, can we stop thinking about it in that way? Mm. And rather, can we look at what does it mean for us to invest in our mental health and wellbeing? And as soon as you look at investing in our mental health and wellbeing, you're looking at the potential that is created when we are mentally well, when we are healthy. You're unlocking the creativity and I think we're going to need this in Australia, believe me, going out of COVID-19. We need to unlock our creativity. We need to unlock our innovation. And when you're looking at that, you're looking at the whole spectrum of prevention and early intervention. So if I'm beginning to feel unwell, what are those signs that enable me to see that? How do I reduce the stigma and the barriers so that I can start the process of engaging? And then where do I go and what do I do? It also means we turn it from an expenditure view mm. into an investment view. And we're actually investing in the mental health and well-being of Australians and saying, if you're not well, of course we're there to help you. But we want to move you up that part of the spectrum where we're really focusing in on you for as, as much of your life as possible, being as well as you possibly can be. But it, sh- it shifts it away from trying to reduce the symptom. I mean, that the... the- the symptomatic is problematic. The symptoms are problematic, but it's not the root cause of what the problem is. So then, I mean, we can start actually changing the root cause and 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 so giving the people tools and resources to self-manage, self-regulate, look after their own happiness, health, and well-being, which is, I think, really critical. Um, we, we got you've got to go soon, so I've got one quick question for you in terms of the ten-year plan, and everything. Where do psychotherapists fit in? Like, we don't have your the the psychology degrees and everything. We've gone to the school of life and we've gone through it and lived it and come out the other side because I've got so many you know, tradies especially come to see me and their mental health is out of shape so they're not working um, and they can't afford it. 
mental health care plans have tried, they've been on medication for years, that hasn't worked because it's just numbed them. And they hear about the work we're doing here or with Ryan and they come in and they go, oh, but I can't afford it. And so that there's these gaps that people are falling into because of the structure and the system, because we, we aren't seen as a resource that people can tap into. Is there, is there any room for us in the future, Christine? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the things that is most critical for us to do, and this is certainly on our roadmap piece of work, is what is the, what is the workforce that we need? And that isn't just psychiatrists and GPs and psychologists, it's many others in there as well. Mental health nurses are a really critical component. Uh, mental health social workers, um, counsellors, psychotherapists, um, a whole range of different professions are needed if we're really going to approach mental health in the right way. And, and I think what drives me in particular to say that, Nick, is that, and you've probably heard me say this before, when we talk about our physical health, we rarely use that phrase physical health. We talk about cancers and then we talk about all the various forms of cancers. You know, we talk yeah. about breast cancer, prostate cancer, or we talk about diabetes. And even with diabetes, it's type one or type two. We talk about um, high blood pressure. We talk about cardiovascular. We talk about the specific issues in mental health we've got a long way to go. We still use two words to describe a really broad range. Because it's such a broad range, we really need what we call a very broad multidisciplinary task force. And we need to work out how and workforce and how do we, and that includes, by the way, absolutely includes what we call peer workers or lived experience workers, people who bring that expertise into the workplace. So how to do that is not gonna be solved overnight. And it's got not only it's got a whole heap of things in it. It's got what are the roles, responsibilities, what are those things that but for the psychotherapist wouldn't get done, and then how how do you bring them into an appropriate structure? How are they remunerated? How is it reimbursed? What are the funding mechanisms for our mental health system? Lots of work still to be done, but the key thing I think is that the more we begin to nuance it and understand how much is involved in those two words, mental health the more we will start to properly understand the role that so many of our professionals can play in helping somebody walk towards what you're talking about, which is unlocking their true potential. Yeah, and, and this, you talk about the, the physical health and mental health, and that's something I took out of our one-on-one -on -one at the town hall meeting. But is there that, I mean, sadness is a human emotion. Anxiety is a human emotion. And there's so much statistics and data and structure around one in three Australians experience depression, anxiety. I think every Australian experiences sadness and anxiety to a certain degree. So is, is, there, is there too much focus on, you know, trying to label everything instead of giving people room to be human? Really, really good point to for us to be able to finish on that one, Nick, because I think it absolutely is true. I think that we we have a lot that we could and should be doing to help people realise there is a range of emotions that we can manage in a healthy way. Yeah. And I think I think the issue is not the emotions and not that it is that we don't have the strategies or the mechanisms or the self awareness or the toolkit. Mm -hmm. to sometimes be able to manage those. So then if we don't, it ticks into illness and unwellness. And I think that, so that is very much part of the next 10 years, is really helping us understand exactly the point you've made. Emotion mm -hmm. stresses are very normal part of life. You can't go through life without stress. What we need is the strategies to manage it so we stay healthy, notwithstanding that. 
Father Christine. Well, we, we call that suffering and then unnecessary suffering. So I think there's a lot of work we can do in the next 10 years to reduce the unnecessary suffering. Absolutely. That's a great conversation to be having again because I think there's a lot in that. Yes. Great. Christine, just want to say thank you so much for joining us today and we really appreciate all the work you're doing to better the mental health of Very this much. nation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for such a fantastic chat with you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. Speak soon. Good to see you. Thanks. Nico. Yes, Mr. Hassan. We're still recording. We are still recording. What did you think, mate? That was good, wasn't it? I love her. You should have seen her work a room at uh, the town hall meeting. She was brilliant. And I think you really heard it there. She listens with the intent to understand. Mm -hmm. And she's really engaged. And she's really actively listening. And she... Um, she really tries to answer the question uh, instead of just telling an agenda or telling another story or something. So um, to, have, to have a woman of her emotional intellect in the position that she's in, I think the country is in really good stead. Um, yeah, that's, I, I, I agree. Obviously, that's the first time I've uh, met Christine. I think, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to think of anyone better to uh, have the role that she has, which is such an important role. Um, yeah. you know, creating this 10-year plan, but also National Suicide Prevention Advisor. Um, we only had half an hour with Christine today, which we really, really appreciate, and we may try and get her on um, again for another half an hour, but um, we'll see how we go. But, uh, yeah, something maybe we can have a chat about, something I, if we had the time I was going to touch on is in regards to suicide prevention, I was on the government website and um, they're talking about towards zero suicides. It's something you hear a lot, you know, it's like where our goal is uh, zero suicides. Well, Gus Wallen's on that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if it's, you know, Realistic. you know, if, if you shoot for the stars and you'll land on the moon, that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, it's, it's, it isn't a realistic goal. So I'm just, I would be interested to maybe chat to her about that and see what, look, what would be a realistic goal? You know, is it a reduction by a certain percentage? Because here's what I, for me, and I've, I've spoken about this on the show before because I'm so, I'm also focused on the, you know, drug stuff and everything. And um, I look at, let's say, drug enforcement, right? So you've got, so you got suicide prevention over here and drug enforcement. And I've spoken before, like if, if we went poof and all the drugs disappeared from this country, then I am of the very strong opinion suicide numbers would go through the roof, like 5x, like maybe 10x. Uh, depends if alcohol was still around or not because that's a legal drug. Um, so it's like if, if the uh, drug... Uh, enforcement, their goal, because you'll see in the paper, yes, we, we seized a million dollars worth of methamphetamine and it's celebrated and everything. So their goal is to have all drugs off the street. Whilst over here, this other part of the government, their goal is to have zero suicides. And I'm like, they, they definitely don't match up and marry very well together. Let's do an experiment. Let's make all drugs disappear, but there's a law that you have to meditate for an hour a day. Oh, okay. How would you enforce that? <laughs> just, I don't know, with electric shock collars or something. Imagine someone just sleeping. No, I'm meditating. I'm meditating. <laughs> we'd we'll do that. we we'll do that. With a, with me or Mel like nods off on the couch. And I'm like, babe, so I'm just meditating. I'm like, you were meditating. <laughs> that was a deep meditation. <laughs> and as Shane said, he's, he's been finding it really interesting because he's obviously diving a lot deeper into a meditative practice. Now he's working here with, with me. And he was really, I think, a bit shocked to learn that there's a difference between meditating and ruminating and contemplating. Mm -hmm. And um, people have this conception that 
meditating is just switching your brain off and it's it's really not it's it's actually staying very present and observant good, good luck with that if that's your goal <laughs> you're gonna die <laughs> so yeah christine we had we had a lot we, we could have talked about um and I'd love, oh, I just, I'd love to be on some form of committee or to have some say or influence or. Oh, you know, mate, me and you wouldn't shut the hell up. We'd be horrible to have on a committee. We would, <laughs> we'd be on there for a week, and they're like, "Who invited these two on here?" Like, get and they're like, "All right, guys, time to go home." And we're like, "No, sit down. We haven't worked this out yet." <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't like our chances. But yeah, we can. We'll see how we go. We're hey, rubbing shoulders with Christine one. Morgan now, so we're mates with her. Shoot, shoot for the stars. And, I uh, I did like uh, how she explained the ten year plan is they're looking at the twenty thirty vision and what a healthy system would look like and then trying to you know uh, reverse engineer that and sort of work yeah. and they're still in the process of working on what does that roadmap actually look like um, in regards to that because yeah you know, I mean, tw- ten years is a long way away you know I think the perception it. around mental health has changed so much in the last ten you know it, I think she she was right it is an exciting time even though there's so many people suffering and struggling at the minute it is an exciting time around what's next for for mental health but COVID I, I'm, I always look for the positives and, and look for the silver lining I suppose and for me Corona COVID is such an opportunity because it's very character revealing but it, it, it then can become character defining so what we're finding is all these mental health issues all these things are popping to the surface and people are having to deal with it and people are having to just go oh shit oh right i've got to do something about this i've got to reach out i've got to talk to someone i'm you know there's this oh no one's got any money and blah 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 i'm i'm busy as a one-armed bricklayer in baghdad at the moment like it's <laughs> it's so people are finally you know still coming in and going i need i want to work on myself i want to work on myself which is which is awesome yeah, I found um, as well speaking to, to people and clients and that kind of thing in Melbourne with, with the lockdown is that I think right now the situation is bringing up even the deeper parts of ourselves because I've, I've, the deeper, you know, unconscious um, disturbances and, and, and then what happens, the old behaviours start to come back to the surface. We've spoken to some people and let's say they might have had a vice with food or a vice with something and they'd worked on it like two years ago and they've actually been really good. Now they're finding themselves, I'm like, I've, I've worked on this but now I've found myself, I'm going back to food like I did two years ago. And it's like, yeah, because you just, this is now deeper disturbances are coming to the surface and an, an mm. old coping mechanism might creep in because before when there's, there's, there's work and going out and going on that holiday in, in two months, and there's all these things things to distract so mm-hmm. now it's like you, you kept the thing at bay but now there's no distraction that that there's some things coming to the surface and it's better to know that now than to not be conscious of it like the gremlins are all starting to climb out aren't they yeah i know that's why it's it's funny like speaking about there being no drugs and that kind of thing like it's funny that you know alcohol sales are having a lovely little resurgence mm. and, and and up and it's funny that that's classified as an essential industry and they're not being shut because like i can only imagine what would happen if people couldn't buy alcohol at this time it would be uh oh, chaos <laughs> um but something you touched on before uh yeah it, ne- it never so it's all coming to the surface and it never feels good when you're in it so yeah we're having a bit of a laugh and but there are people in genuine suffering out there mm. who are really struggling and we're not laughing at all with um but it's 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 a it is a positive because if it doesn't come out then it's a, it's going to remain in there and it's going to keep causing damage so it never feels good when you're in it it doesn't feel good while you're you're pulling it out 
but it feels so much better down the track. Of course. I think a Carl Jung quote, it's, you know, unless we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our life and we'll call it fate. And so, you know, when unconscious, you know, these demons will call them you know but these unconscious parts has come to the surface we're like oh i don't want to look at that because we don't like it right but it's better to become aware of it so we can start to work through it as opposed to leaving it in the unconscious and we just subconsciously get directed to these negative patterns and negative behaviors and these emotional reactions for 5 10 20 30 years yeah well 96 percent of what we do happens subconsciously so yeah. we're only conscious not me bro i'm woke i'm like 90 uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you, bro, not me. <laughs> All right, Patches. Patches <laughs> McGee. Um, yeah, so, it, and, you know, the five steps of change. The first one is awareness. So um, the the cause of all suffering is attachment, but also ignorance, once again. So if you're in the dark, if you've got a blindfold on, if you can't see, if you're not woke as fuck, then, like Hass, then <laughs> it's... You're gonna, you're not gonna be able to change it. You're gonna have no idea. It's not a problem until someone says it's a problem. So, um, yeah, I think Corona is bringing an awareness uh, that people are having to deal in the reality of what is occurring, um, and instead of just trying to st- stick it under the carpet. Yeah, yeah, because it's like now that they're home all the time, that thing's crawling out from under the carpet. <laughs> remember <laughs> and, me, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, it's it's coming to <laughs> remember me. It's um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're they're starting to see what their relationships are really like now. They're spending more time with their partners, or they're starting to become more aware of how they are as a parent because they're spending more time with the kids, and and they're starting to see how more reactive they are and how often you know they're outsourcing their happiness and i think what's in a oddly beautiful way is everyone's realizing how uncontent or discontent they are and it's kind of like you like you went on a vipassana retreat you know so all of a sudden i've uh radically changed my environment to see what's really going on for me this is what people do vipassana yeah because I'm sure like a lot of this and I don't know what the percent what do you reckon the percentage is because of all the people I've heard who've done Vipassana I reckon over half have told me they didn't last the 10 days so when I went there there was 40 people and I think I think about 12 pulled out okay 12 pulled out so nearly uh, a third a yeah um which is interesting because it's like what you, you've booked it to go so you know you're going you know what's going to happen there you're going to sit in silence for 10 days that's it just sit down for and meditate you know that kind of thing yet yet people can't do it why because the environment is such that all of those demons you know all the stuff under the carpet you're bringing with you and they're going to come out from under the carpet they call they call it microsurgery of your brain mm. like it's it's because uh, everything everything comes to the surface and you spend the first three days doing anapana, which is just focusing on the breath. So for three days straight, you're just observing the breath coming in and out of your nostril. Mm. And that's going to make you pretty aware. <laughs> that's going to focus oh, your mate. mind. Unreal. I've been, um, I'm trying to retrain myself to breathe through my nose at the minute. I'm about a week and a half in. I've tried in the past, but I've, just, I've, I've lost my way with it. But I'm really going for it this time. So last week and a half, my main focus in my entire life is just breathing through my nose. <laughs> it's really interesting. But even like here, like we're pretty secluded here. And I've had, I went through a period of a few weeks 
where I was just just sitting whenever I wasn't kind of looking after Tommy or with a client. I was just sitting and looking out the window for hours at a time. And yeah, it's it's so funny. All of a sudden, I've got memories popping up of you know going to the shops with my dad when I was five, and I'm like, oh shit, I haven't thought about that in about twenty years. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> it's it's so amazing. And I'm sure if a pastor retreat is like this full full on surgery type of that, I just what have I got in here? What's going to come to the surface to purge? Well, after those three days, the next seven days are spent sitting, just observing the sensations in the body. So the mind has a tendency to wander off and to dip into the memory or dip into the imagination. So you're going to bounce between the past and the future or your memory and your imagination. So you're going to ruminate or you're going to start wondering. And the whole purpose is just try and keep your mind present and connected to the here and now. Um, because yeah if the more that pops up the more memories that surface the more it's going to drag your mind away mm. so yeah you've got to really work through a whole heap of shit and not only that you, you're disconnected from it you can't even look at another person you know you can't hold a door open you can't listen to music or watch tv you can't read a book you can't write you can't check your phone um so it does bring this this hyper awareness and hyper presence which people have never experienced and that alone freaks them the fuck out yeah well, it's like that's what leads you to when you ate your was it an orange it was an orange yeah. <laughs> when you had your orange and you know you it sounds to me like you were just eating it in such a hyper aware state where all of a sudden the mind wasn't thinking about you know what am i doing after i ate the orange <laughs> or, no. or, or or what's led me to eat this orange or what did i do you know to my ex-girlfriend 10 years ago it's just it's just i'm so 100 percent of my attention is on this task that i'm doing right now and ideally that's what we want to be doing yeah nothing else existed other than that orange mm. and which and is which is actually true for everything that we're doing but the mind says otherwise yeah <laughs> it was yeah it's still i can still vividly like that left a deep impression upon mm. me um and i can still see just the tubes and remember how sweet they were but i remember how sour the rind was but together they were a perfect unison and union and ah. Oh, Good times. I want to go back. Yeah, yeah. That's on my on my bucket list. The old well, um, Shane's trying to do it. Shane, Shane applied, hmm. but he um, he was too honest with his past mental health and mental illness issues. You were going to so, write him a letter or something, were I you? I did, and they said no, because no. <laughs> they, they can't take anyone that's uh, been hospitalised in the last two years. Yeah, and I'm sure... I don't, I don't know the backstory, but I know that... Um, that would have come from trial and error who knows how long ago but they would have taken people and had some issues because you know and Shane's in a different situation because he's done so much work on himself but it's like it's like with people and you know I know there's a lot of celebrities now you know Tim Ferriss and that's supporting psychedelic use and it, it will have its place in the future I'm sure but a lot of people now are like haven't done a lot of work on themselves and are throwing themselves into an ayahuasca ceremony or psilocybin <laughs> and, and they've got really psychotic issues and I'm like, that's that's really uh, too much fire you're throwing yeah. yourself into there. Yeah. You're because you get, yeah, cause you get one out of 10 people and they're like, I had it's just, I have a different perception of the world. It was fantastic. But then a lot of others um, will do- throw them deeper into a psychotic state. N- not everyone's going to pop out the other side of that as Ram Das, are they? No. No, no, no. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> but but even him, he was a bloody professor at a at one of the top universities in the states. He wasn't like someone. He tried it out of curiosity, I think. Yeah. 
Mm. Well, yeah, him and Alan Watts sort of just got on the juice one night and, yeah, literally changed his reality. Mm. Changed his name, grew a beard. Why not? Yeah, <laughs> Ram Dass. Um, so I wanted to talk to Christine as well. I'll just touch on... I, I, I caught, What did we call it before? It was I was talking to Emma about it, and it was responsible health caring. So she's doing a course at the moment, uh, herbal alchemy. She's studying, mm-hmm. and she was doing one of the lectures. And they sweet spoke name, about, by the way. That's cool. I know, right? Yeah, unless you're an American. I'm a herbal alchemist. Yeah, well, she. I think what they become is an energy architect. Gee, that's even cooler. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so deficient. I'm going to go and drink a bottle of wine. An energy architect. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No I know, right? So she's watching this lecture, and and the the lecturer said, if someone comes to me and wants herbs to help them sleep, he's going to ask a question: How much sleep are you getting? And what's the quality of that sleep? And if if it's anything under six hours, he's not going to prescribe them herbs to sleep. He's going to prescribe them herbs to have more energy throughout the day so they can go for a run and then get more physically tired. So he's going to try and help them to change their lifestyle rather than just give them a magic pill to make them sleep. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's that... Um, the responsible health caring. I think that's what we need more of over the next 10 years instead of just, doctor, I feel I feel sad, which is a normal human emotion, but I don't know how to stop feeling sad or I don't know how to stop deepening this, this sense of sadness. Oh, well, here's a medication. I had a client the other day. He was on six different antipsychotics, all at the maximum de- degree, and... And he ended up overdosing on a whole bottle and he's had a chat to me and I'm just like, what the actual fuck? Like these psychiatrists and psychologists were just like, yeah, we're not going to actually explore (laughs) how your mind is creating your reality. We're just going to try and numb the whole fucking spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And and then uh, the unfortunate thing then is... um, it, it actually, even if someone decide they're going to do some you know, deeper work in conjunction with that, they have too much trouble accessing the things they need to access mm. to start to heal because, one, like you said, everything is, is, is completely numbed. Um, yeah, you can't and, work with them. That's right, yeah. And we, we had clients like that and I'd, I'd feel so sorry for them because I'm like, you, they're so uh, like zombies um, and so scared of coming off it because I'm like, like coming off that shit's horrible. It's yeah. absolutely terrible, and and if you're on six at the maximum dose, it's like, man, it's kind of like but you have to you have to do that for the rest of your life. It's 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 rough. Yeah, and there there was no there's no plan for him to come off it or to to marry a medication with a cognitive retraining process or anything. It was just fucking dump as much numbness on it as we can, mm. and and that's a contraindicator. You know, I can't work with a client who's drinking or who who comes in in an altered state of consciousness. I can't someone who's you know in a manic episode or, or anything like that mm. um, because I can't access them on the level that I need to. So if someone yeah, there's comes, there's not in, enough resources there, internal yeah, resources. If, if that person comes in doped up to the gills, then it's going to be a real uphill battle to yeah. to connect with them. Yeah. Luckily, luckily he's been off it. Uh, he, he got rid of it all, you know, 
a few months ago and he's yeah he's accessible so yeah oh that's good that's a good story yeah because that's another thing i was maybe going to touch on with christine and will if we get her back on is um yeah like the there's a story I, i literally was crying it was so sad the guy in melbourne i don't know if you saw it who uh, was having a manic episode, had bipolar, manic episode, and he knew it, and he was trying to get into a, get a, a bed in the war, psych ward, because he knew what he is like mm. in that state, and he just couldn't get in anywhere. And the place that he'd been into a few times, the brother's like, you know, he needs to get in, look up his file. And um, he could, and then he ended up going to a regional place who said they could get him in, but he was waiting in their waiting room for like, you know, the whole thing was nearly like 20 hours, and he was in this state, and he couldn't get in anywhere. And he kind of left this regional waiting room in this manic state and there was all police and he was unarmed and there was police out the front and they like wrestled him to the ground and kicked him in the head and it was it was just terrible and um and once again it's because he couldn't get a bed and even if you do get a bed like where plenty of people come from the psych ward and like this is the people who are in the most you know rough state and it's just like let's get them in here get them in a bed get them sedated on medication um and get them out as soon as possible because <laughs> like because it's a public system so it's like we need the bed because of the demand right so you're trying to um just sedate someone enough so they can re-enter society but once again you haven't you haven't done anything to help that person long term totally i'd love to get um, a couple of my clients have become ambassadors um, and I'd love to get Tonka or Dan Brosnan on um, to talk about their experiences in, in that very sort of system and, and that they had very similar stories and uh, it's so prevalent I think so yeah well uh, hopefully we can get Christine back but hopefully we can get a couple of these people that have been in those experiences to share their experiences and see how we can help create a system where that doesn't happen yeah yeah in my mind, it's like, you know, hello, Steve's <laughs> in the house. She's come on. She wants. To, she's hanging to get on the podcast. She's hanging to be a guest, aren't you? Totally. <laughs> totally. This doesn't totally. sound like too much conviction. Um, yeah, no, I think it's just oh, I've worked with people who have been already struggling with trauma and have been traumatised from being in the, in a psych ward. You know. It's so clinical. People are sedated. People oh, are screaming. Compounds I'm like, the problem. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a it's not a healing environment. You know, we just get people out in. You know, they should be taken to some place in nature, and it's like more mm. retreat like. And but once again, this stuff costs money. And I think what that's one of the things Christine said, which was great. It's just changing that. How much does it cost us to fix mm. a person? Those are the words. How much does it cost us to fix a person, as opposed to how do we create? Um, healthy she mental said, health with people she said how how can we invest in their well invest that's right yeah it's it's a, such a different question with such a different uh lens to look at the issue through. but that's on a macro level on a micro level a singular person my clients are doing that they're, they're like all right instead of spending money trying to fix the problem you know you tell them to add up all the receipts of all the junk food and alcohol and cigarettes and everything instead of you know medicating the symptom all right what would happen if you invested that in your well-being and, and learning to be well? And it's, it's a, yeah. And then all of a sudden, they don't have to spend so much down the track. Yeah. So. No, I, I think I think before we jumped on air, I was telling you I've just started working with a lady, and um, it was funny because I was chatting with my mum. Uh, yeah, it must have been last week after the first session. I'm like, yeah, what's going on? Blah blah. And I'm like, oh, I'm just doing some work with a lady as a client, and mum's like, oh, what's wrong? Like, what, what, what do you need to? What do you need to work on? How much and is like, that costing? 
Yeah, well, it's like, you know, 900 bucks, and I just happily paid it up front because like, it's an investment. And it's like there's nothing yeah. specifically uh, wrong, mum, but I just want to keep on top of my mental and emotional health and I want to keep, you know, developing and evolving and there's nothing has to be specifically wrong for me to do that. <laughs> well, it's like with the client student maintenance program, they've, they've spent six weeks or 12 weeks or 12 months getting back in shape mentally. And then it's like, all right, I'm healthy. I'm going to stop going to the gym. Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's keep doing a maintenance program just once a month, or you yeah. know, just touch base and keep you on track. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> what are they, they always say it. So we'll go in a sec, but they always say that the footy players after preseason, and you'll see a lot of the the, the top guys, they just stay in shape in the off season because they're like it's easier to stay in shape than to get in shape. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's the same with your mental health. Just to stay in shape. Don't let yourself get out of shape because then you're gonna have to break through that inertia again. Well, let's talk to Christine about that next week if we can get her back. Done. We'll get her back. I reckon she liked us, mate. I think she did. did. (laughs) All right, mate. Pleasure as always, Nico. Yep, you too. All right, listeners, we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Woke Blokes podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Also leave us a five-star rating. We thank you so much and we'll see you all next time.